25th of November, the gunpowder treasonous plot. Oh, God, is it going to be that already? It's not even November. Well, it's Graphic Policy Radio, and we are political all the time. So I'm using the opportunity of the winter holiday as an excuse to think back about a comic that has had an enormous impact, actually, uh, not just the medium, but ultimately uh, in protest and politics in the world at large. That is V for Vendetta. Uh, so this is Ilana Levin, a.k.a. Ilana Brooklyn, and this is Graphic Policy Radio, and this is the V for Vendetta podcast. Um, you know, it's interesting. In the comics, V is anonymous, and in real life, V has also been anonymous. And by anonymous, I mean anonymous with a capital A, i.e. the organization. V has marched with Occupy Wall Street. It's marched in Catalonia and Ecuador and Lebanon, and now in Hong Kong. China, where the iconic masks are made, is actually refusing to ship them to southern China and to Hong Kong, where they might be used in the protests. So, in fact, protesters are currently making their own. Uh, there's actually a great piece in Quartz.com uh, about that. Seeing so many V masks still used in protests and feeling like the current conversation around Alan Moore's work was missing something I figure right now is a good time to do an episode about V for Vendetta. The comic by Alan Moore and artist David Lloyd was first published in 1982, and it had a huge impact in comics and sci-fi, but it didn't really make it out beyond fandom until the movie in 2005. Um, and I have a killer roundtable of guests today to talk about the comic, the movie, and the cultural impact and iconography of that mask. I'm joined by Ajay Singh Chowdhury. Ajay is the executive director of the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research and a core faculty member specializing in social and political theory. He holds a PhD from Columbia University and an MSSC from the London School of Economics. His research focuses on social and political theory, Frankfurt School critical theory, which is obviously the best kind, <laughs> political economy, political ecology, media, religion, and post-colonial studies. He has written for The Guardian and Plus One, Los Angeles Review of Books, Quartz, Social Text, Dialectical Anthropology, The Hedgehog Review, Filmmaker Magazine, and Three Quarks Daily, among other venues. Ajay is currently working on a book of political theory for the Anthropocene. And I'm joined by a collaborator of mine, Ange Tran. Ange is a graphic artist and designer that works exclusively on projects connected to progressive and radical change. Everything from supporting labor, renewable energy policy, and social change campaigns to participation in social movements and direct action. They've been a nerd since before search engines. Beyond drawing and graphic art, their strengths include a deep felt love for all living things. In free time, Ange enjoys birding, board games, and supporting other people's awesome work. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me and and us. And Ange, I reached out to you specifically because I was thinking about the um, the mask as an image itself. And, and you and I have done a workshop together on the on visual iconography in activism and organizing. And like this symbol, the V mask, has been such a potent and successful one. Um, and I was like, I know who's thought about this a bit. And I asked you if you had and you were like, let's do this. So here we are today. So thank you all for joining me. So, you know, one of the questions I had actually going into this that I'd meant to research and hadn't before, but have now, was like, where did this particular mask and design come from? And, um, you know, David Lloyd, uh, his drawing of the V for Vendetta yeah. mask um, is is specific. It's, uh, you know, it's what British people would have seen that and been like, yep, that's a Guy Fox mask. 
but the specifics of the design of it were things that he uh, designed himself to work for this particular book. Um, and I had, I had actually asked British friends of mine uh, sort of like what they remembered and, and what had seen about it and things like that. And I'll kind of go into that a bit during the show. But, um, wh- you know, when, when we think about the comic or look at it, like the entire freaking cover of the damn book is always, you know, the dominant face and, 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 and that mask that you just see uh, over and over again. What, what did folks have as your sort of initial immediate reaction when you saw it, when you encountered the work? I suspect that many people that are in social movements probably saw the movie, if not the uh, comic, before they started seeing the mask pop-up or thought to use the mask pop-up in different types of protest. Um, But I think that probably a lot of people saw the mask first and uh, maybe didn't until later see the movie or take an interest to sort of the pop culture source of where this image came from. Something I liked in an interview from the illustrator that worked on the comic, uh, he was surprised and also pleased when he found out that this was, you know, he saw in the news that these symbols were being used. We saw them pop up in Occupy. We know that Anonymous adopted it as a symbol, but he said, it's just a great symbol of protest for anyone who sees tyranny. Something that I think struck me when I first started seeing the mask as an image floating around, mostly on the internet, honestly, before protests, was that it seemed almost, to me anyway, as synonymous with things that I was kind of less down and driving with, like libertarianism, um, (laughs) you know, certain internalized, I would say, like maybe even slightly fantastical associations of like independence and freedom. And then also at the same time, um, when I started seeing it pop up in Occupy, it had already made an appearance in Egypt and Turkey. And it really gave me something to think about around symbolism, not just symbolism as it's been designed or maybe intended, right? Because it was mostly for like a sort of media presence, although certainly I think that there was a genuine spirit and unrest within the people authoring this comic. But the way that symbols keep their meaning and also shift their meaning with how they're used. So you actually saw this mask in use before you had read the comic or seen the movie? No, no, no. I, I, oh, okay. I read the comic first, and then I saw the movie, and then I started um, seeing it appear. And actually, it's funny, okay, because yeah. when the film came out, I was much younger, and initially, I basically had a lot of, like, personal perspective issues around Evie's character in the film, yeah. and I liked the comic better, and mm-hmm. I liked the grandioseness of V's character in the comic better. And recently, when I revisited it, uh, I feel kind of flip-flopped, really. Uh, do you mean flip-flopped as in now you, you find the movie version of V more compelling or flip-flopped in the sense that you uh, just changed your position on the book or just curious about that? I think that because I had not maybe been in a broader world or been thinking necessarily in this perspective of like myself as part of a global experience, I, uh, yes. you know what I mean? Like my mm-hmm. 
it was also the 90s. I was very mm-hmm. gothy. Yeah. Um, you know, I listened to way too much Stabbing Westward. I liked the <laughs> sort of conceit of the oh, V character shit. in the comic book where there's like tons of exposition. Like, right, th- these are things that I could easily attach to my identity at the time. But that was from a sense of like knowing that things were going kind of awry in the world without having a tactile experience or even really a historical understanding, which is really saying yeah. something because I'm Vietnamese. So, right, there's just like this whole paradigm of political stuff that I knew was yeah. bad, but I didn't really understand how bad it was. And I don't think I had really a lot of empathy yet. So when the film did come out and I rewatched it now recently for, for you know, us talking now, now that... I've been through my own life experience. Um, yeah, I think that the characters are a lot more nuanced than I could really understand or give credit to at that time when I was younger. So true. So true. And like, and um, I definitely read the comic. Uh, I read the comic before it sort of, it got picked up in the sort of um, political universe. Uh, And yeah, I I think the global media, the sort of relationship of this to the way in which global media circulates is really interesting. Um, But then I also lived in Britain uh, for about a year and a bit. And uh, so I also experienced like, um, you know, like the bonfires and all that stuff, uh, like before all these things like came together into the perfect sort of like, uh, symbol of uh, global protest, and I remember actually my it was like my first or second month in Britain when all when they have those sort of it was that holiday it was Guy Fawkes Day, um, and I was like why are these people crazy like why are they lighting shit on fire like what the fuck is going on here <laughs> like it, it's like a very interesting like thrown straight into uh, a reaction with this material, um, and I've always had a very uh, uh, I, I like. I think this book is extremely good. I, do, I mean, this is like the most cliched thing to, to say, but I do think the the book is more interesting in some ways than the movie. Although I think the movie is really well made, and and a lot of the media impact that we know is 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 through the film. Um, but I've always had a very interesting relationship with this uh, text uh, and with this image because I feel like the image is very ambiguous and the text is very ambiguous. Um, Alan Moore, mm-hmm. right, is this sort of professed um, anarchist. Uh, I think he, he like broke his anarchism only just this year for like for the first time ever to say vote labor, although that didn't turn out so well um unfortunately great video he cut though it was a good video but literally i think he's like never voted ever else but you know like he's like he's like a balls to the wall anarchist right um and the funny thing about this text is it's not a very utopian like like there's a kind of real hopeful vibe at the end of the film um Mm -hmm. Right. Where like everyone's like, oh, my God, like the future is wide open and and, like, who knows? Like and it's not exactly like utopia, but it's like it's like a wide open horizon Uh, at the end of the book. It's like some of the horrifying things that one might imagine in a like theoretical anarchic kind of revolutionary scenario seem to be going down. And it's an Mm -hmm. extreme. I don't know if this is like a 
how you deal with like spoilers and ends and things like that in this on this oh, podcast. It's, a, it's from nineteen. I know it's from nineteen eighty two, but I don't know. Some people might yeah. read it and they might be just like they might learn what the ending. But like, no, I, I think it's important for there are like the roving gangs yeah. of like people doing mm-hmm. horrible things. Like that's like kind of the ambiguous end of this, right? All of our heroes are kind of like off on their different directions or dead, and like it's like kind of actual anarchy not in the necessarily good way uh and there's something in there i respect that yeah do you want to say more you know like i respect him like i i'm you know i i'm not an anarchist although i've certainly worked in coalition with anarchists and stuff like that at times but like you know um but like i i appreciate him not being like and then it's anarchism and everything's perfect i'm like i'm glad you're not Claiming that, no, it's, that in some ways, irritating. I feel like he, he was really true to the material and the material, yeah. uh, you know, uh, Ange mentioned like how, how, uh, uh, how, you know, I have very strong feelings and I imagine you both do as well about the way in which uh, V's little like quest for freedom, you know, seems to run right over any, you know, the, the rights and, and, and self-autonomy of Evie, like, pretty hardcore. Um, so, like, he's really embraced this certain kind yeah. of, like, like a deep, dark ambiguity of this character. And I think that Lloyd did a really good job in taking the Guy Fox mask, which was already super ambiguous in history, and I'm, like, happy to go into that, and sort of, like, fusing those together to make this symbol mm-hmm. that is, like, sort of, like, it's like it's affectively charged, right? It has this kind of like sinister, um, and it does have an anti-authoritarian or or like a a streak of rebelliousness. But that could be a a good or bad rebelliousness, I guess, is the thing that I think is so. I mean, yeah, like the thing it. that we always see from any sort of text is that you have the people can, you know, like there's people who are on the right marching as Captain America, and people on the left marching right. as Captain America. Like even regardless right. of the authorial intent. And like our inability to fathom how somebody could possibly take something a certain way, like people are still going to do that. But yeah, this is, but like Andrew, when you were saying that you initially, when you were like, oh yeah, this might be some libertarian shit. That's like a very natural, you know, way to, way to take the text. Although I, I have to give Alan more credit. You know, I, I read this in high school. Uh, so that would have been the mid nineties. And I may, I think I read it even before I read Watchmen. And it definitely was one of the first things I read that made me be like, maybe should, should I be an anarchist? And then it was like, no, but there's, but like, it actually made me ask myself that question, um, which wasn't something that, and I, you know, and I sort of put it in the same mental batch as I did the other, you know, really like great dystopian books that you kind of like 1984 and Fahrenheit for 51. Like it's part of that family of literature. Well, I think that there's something interesting to kind of talk about in that. And I think that this is a voice is a voice that we've seen in a lot of works, not just in comics and pop culture, but even in, you know, different anarchist manifestos the world over, even in people coming from a philosophical, like, critical practices as well Mm -hmm. as like maybe social political positions where um, it's very, the thing that has an appeal about this particular type of voice is the intimacy of the sort of internal thought that's getting woven into this story that like we get to listen to without participating in. And I think that that is 
useful, and that's obviously had an impact. But I think that also where this influenced Voices of Manifestos, right, everything from the anarchist cookbook to different types of declarations, anonymous, where it stops, I mean, like, right, if I was ever called a propaganda machine, I would feel like I had finally contributed to the world and, like, done something significant. (laughs) So I'm coming from, like, a very particular position, I think, as, like, um, a graphic designer with delusions and fantasies of grandeur as far as, like, (laughs) political effectiveness. But Those are good delusions. Keep them coming. (laughs) I know. It's important. But, I mean, I think actually that speaks to my point. There has to be space where other people can see themselves in there and that doesn't negate the self at the same time and that also isn't such a downer. Like, right, this guy is depressed and he's just negative, 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 negative. Sure, broadly speaking, the things that he's saying about the situation of this fascist state are not incorrect. There are definitely parallels even more today, even more right now than there were in the 80s when the comic first came out or like the early 2000s when the film came out. Like, it's even just like more so relevant. But in the possibility that this character is supposed to manifest, um, and this is where I appreciate the ending of the film as being a little bit different from the ending of the comic, like if you're talking about, you know, an idea can't be shot or whatever bullshit, like there's a certain kind of um, faith or poetry or something that has to be part of that framework to make it believable and not just fantasy. Well, you know, I think like this is almost jumping to the end of it. It is sort of one of my big thesis points on it is like, you know, the, the, the book is ultimately very individualist and Mm -hmm. you see individual people taking action that results in, you know, different change. And V does get to have, he enacts his vendetta and he kills these absolute authoritarian monsters and the government does turn over. Uh, but in the movie, it's very much more about lots of people coming and donning yeah. the mask. Like in the end of the book, you know, she realizes that she must be V and then she reaches out to one individual person after she becomes him, so to speak, to find him. It's like person to person. In the movie, you have all of these people coming out, wearing masks together, standing in masks. It's much more collectivist. I mean, ultimately, the book is very much an anarchist philosophy. The movie is much more like a progressive Democrat, basically. Like, the movie is a lot more um, mainstream um, in its politics, But I was so relieved by it. Like, you know, folks have to remember, this was still coming out in, like, George W. Bush era. And I went into the movie with a great amount of fear that this would be, the movie would be completely depoliticized. I was really concerned that this would be made, this entirely political text would be made unpolitical. And when the end actually was, like, here's people from all different walks of life coming together, working collectively to, like, overthrow the fascists, I was crying and oh. I just made like a big snotty mess all over my friend's lap, crying like tears of relief while like Street Fighting Man played because I was so relieved that the movie was still left. And that the, and and then I was like, but I even like it. Like, this is a good political point that it's groups of people coming together to do it. But, you know, that but then it's actually 
not at all the the ending that Alan Moore would have championed, which is yet yet again, and Hollywood doesn't do what Alan Moore wants, you know. <laughs> which is okay. I mean, like as you said before, like authorial intent only goes so far. I mean, I don't think it's okay that like Alan Moore had all his like has these like ongoing like uh, IP issues with with DC and whatnot. Yeah, getting um, But like, no okay. author does get the final say on how people interpret their their work, <laughs> and I and I do think that you know that film adaptation. It's funny that you mentioned it's 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 sort of moment of reception. Cause I actually can't remember. I have the book right in front of me. I was just flipping through it right now, but I can't remember if it's in the book or not, but that scene in the film actually, which is far earlier and far less bombastic than the ending, which we've been talking about uh, where the, where the station manager or whatever his name is, the, the sort of Evie's uh, 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 sort of, compatriot a little bit um yeah is going through his collection not it's not v but it's, it's this guy's collection and he has like a quran i believe if i recall correctly mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah uh which yeah. which in, in that moment in that war it was like you know not too deep it was deep enough but uh into the war on terror but it's not as 20 years in as we are now um uh, that that was like a meaningful thing and also like a really horrifying vision for, um, you know, the way in which a, uh, you know, a fascist sort of 21st century fascism in Europe would look like, um, you know, more when he was writing, was drawing a lot on Thatcher, right. On um, that kind of ideology and, and, and things yeah. that were going on in that era. And I thought that was a really uh, good and yeah, politically brave decision to, uh, really center the way in which, um, there, like a Muslim other would be very much a center part of this story, just as much as, uh, in fact, I believe that character is also portrayed as, as homosexual. So just as much as yeah. a um, a queer character would be, right? Um, I mean, yeah, his character is completely different in the, he's like not yeah. really a character in the book and they don't have much of a relationship there. I mean, also just in the TV show, yeah. this is like, okay, that's Glenn Beck and Bill O'Reilly, like the, the evil TV host is like such a clear one-to-one. Oh, yeah. Um, in our piece, like the movie is about Bush and the book is about Thatcher, England. And I think the movie is a lot more literalist than the book is too. But the thing that the comic and the movie have in common, even, even if the expression or the decisions around how to express this are a little bit different. The common ground there is, is that this is really pretty actively, uh, trying to build a counterculture that is identified through like, anti-thatcherism so i think maybe that's where like absolutely various philosophies of anarchism socialists you know what you will like right that's that's the common grounds where the mask as a symbol comes into play certainly but also the, the difference between the comic and the movie agree with each other nicely is that it is anti capitalist and now we're actually Right, like right now, we haven't, like, right, it was kind of like a faux pas to, like, get overly, I don't know, referential about, like, economic theories for a little while. And now I feel like it's come back where we're seeing, like, in South America, all of these anti-capitalist demonstrations. Yes. Um, yeah, but, but yeah. sorry, Ajay, you were going to say something. No, no, no. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to pick up on, on that point to link it to the other, because uh, I'm glad you raised it. Uh, I think... Uh, in this moment, like political economy, and you think think about um, a case like uh, somewhere like Chile, right? Like sort of the fir- the famous sort of like test case uh, imposed from above after the Allende was deposed in, in, in the CIA coup. Um, 
you know, that's where the birth of neoliberalism is, right? Um, and to, to see uh, so much happening there um, to push back on this. I mean, there's that wonderful poster. I don't know if people saw it, but uh, I think it was making the rounds on the internet where someone was like, you know, this is the birthplace of neoliberalism and this is where it will die. Um, and, the, and it's interesting to see that kind of, uh, I mean, A, to see that bubbling up in so many places, that kind of connection. Uh, and it's not like an accident. I remember um, shortly after the 2016 election, uh, some, there was a question, like, I think the question was like to Branko Milanovic, who was this like kind of like interesting, uh, relatively mainstream economist at the, at the World Bank. And people being like, well, do you think there's some connection between all these like moments of protest and far right and, and all this kind of stuff? And he's like, well, yeah, <laughs> like the global economy is interconnected. And I think part of that is also the global, you know, circulation of certain kinds of media, um, not only from the United States, although we are a major part of that media um, sort of the sort of circulation of that media. Um, and so we see it sort of bubble up in all these places. Uh, the, the one thing I did want to say, and actually I think it um, connects really nicely with this question of the bringing back sort of uh, the economic portrait or bringing back these like direct protests is that um, um, Alana, when you were listing this as, as sort of one of these dystopias, you know, I teach this in a class called the dystopian imagination, um, but there's many different kinds of dystopias. And, and in fact, the week that I teach this to students, I also have them read some of Frederick Jameson's Archaeologies of the Future. Um, and he actually has, I think, four varieties. I can't remember, honestly, this is embarrassing, but he has many varieties of utopia and dystopia. I think there's four, at least four. Um, and like something like 1984 is like a classic dystopia, right? And what for for him, what that is is it's, it's an anti-political message. Like whether or not Orwell intended that or not, God knows. Um, but right, it, 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 it's it's like this is what it happens if you try to change the world. It will be some kind of like horrible thing like this. Uh, and there's actually a lot of that in dystopian fiction. Um, dystopian fiction also, right? That um, very often sort of cannot you know, just recreates the world. And I don't think this is necessarily a bad thing, um, but recreates the world we already know and, and sort of uh, projects it um, into a different circumstance or a different time. Um, whereas uh, the kind of dystopia that, that V for Vendetta is um, actually uh, calls forth the politics. It, it's like willing to take a gamble. This is something about its honesty that I find really fascinating as well because it's generally, again, not the sort of... Uh, sort of uh, starry-eyed anarchism that one associates uh, uh, with, you know, some versions of anarchism. Um, rather, this is like, it's worth rolling the dice. It's worth making a political, it's worth doing it. And I think that's something that binds the film and the book together, um, even if the, the mm-hmm. endings mm-hmm. and the outcomes are very ambiguous. Um, you know, Sorry, one, one of the things, no, that was perfect. Um, you know, one one of the things that I really thought was a great innovation of the comic in this dystopia uh, was the whole I, the whole way that the different arms of the fascist government are named after parts of the body. Oh God, you know, that part's have, so good. It's so freaking brilliant. Like the finger are the police. You know, the 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 um, the uh, the voice is the propaganda mechanism. You know, the the ears are like the spies, and they listen. And this whole idea of like the the body of the state. Um, yeah. is, and so that if you're fighting and struggling against any of these arms of the government, you're, you're, it's like, it implies that you're fighting against your own body. And then there's V in the first fight scene of the comic, 
And his hand falls off when they go to grab him by his wrist and his hand is a grenade. And his whole body is always sort of falling into different pieces. Like he plays with with dummy masks and he plays with like like, um, armatures and like all these different pieces of the body is just obliterated. And it's himself, right? Uh, And I was just like, that is artistically and metaphorically such a great and beautiful device. I feel like there's something something else to that too that at least I think is interesting if not useful and um, we're, we're talking about this a lot in terms of like this fascist state apparatus in the comic and in the movie where where does the body end and where does like the mechanism of control begin yes definitely all that is built in Um, A thing that I feel like is more sort of subtly established, but not really addressed in the same hit-the-nail-on-the-head way as the long arm of the voice, right, the finger men, the oppression, the control, is V's trauma Mm -hmm. from what has happened to him. And the trauma that he's really kind of imposing on the people around him, especially Evie. Um, Yep. And that in this sort of confusion between the broader world and the self, there's, and I feel like in other genres of like many different kinds of dystopias, right? I just recently watched the film The Lighthouse. I don't know. Did did either of you guys see that? I did. The Lighthouse? Right. So that's The The Lighthouse. Lighthouse. I have not seen that film, but I'm writing it down now. Yeah. (laughs) But uh, that, that's a bit of like a psychotic fantasy of trauma because you cannot discern, you can't really discern between the outside world and what may be happening internally. And I think that what you just said, Alana, about the finger, the voice, the state apparatus, that there's not a lot of clear distinction between that and V, that this as a type of trauma really talks about, well, where does recovery come in? And like, what does that mean? So like where we're seeing these masks everywhere even, and like, this is definitely reaching, but I'm curious to know what you guys think. Um, When we are seeing these masks appear in historic contemporary uh, contexts, like Occupy onto now with the Hong Kong protests, right? There's like a whole bunch of actions slated to happen. We know that there are all these bands going on around masks. We know that people are finding ways to make masks or glue hair to their face. Like, whose suffering are we hearing now mm-hmm. and in how this connects to people? And what, even though we had, like, in the comic, all this exposition, in the movie, you know, these characters that we were focused around, like, what really was, what really was like, the nature of that suffering that we were supposed to understand there? And, like, how does that connect to this kind of, like, depressed anarchist agenda, or some might say like revolutionary, radical kind of repurposing of energy. Hmm. I mean, I, I, I think a lot in terms of like the mask itself, because you have this tool, right, that enables anybody to be seen as part of that fight and, and and that movement without having to reveal their identity. And I, you feel like you were hitting on this a bit earlier too, Ange, like without having to be like, well, this is literally who I am. 
And it's in a way that sort of papers over, you know, distinctions and differences between people, but can also provide the anonymity and safety. And like, you know, in the comic, the reason why the police can't immediately identify him is because the eye holes are such that they can't get a retinal identification. And then in Hong Kong, it's the same thing. Like, not just any mask necessarily would work, but like, because this is covering so much of the eye, I think is part of the reason why... Um, it's actually a successful protest mask in particular. Um, and so you, you, it's like a, a thing that you're using that enables you to not just be yourself, but to be a part of, you know, a bigger group, to have the anonymity as well as being a, an instant icon, and as well as being an instant icon. I also really liked, this is like a, a quote from the movie, but I like that in the scene, like in one of these scenes where V is talking to the sort of like, genuine police detective that's right like he's straight yeah Finch Finch. he's straightforward he's just trying to be a good detective he doesn't necessarily have like these broader critiques that V is so keen on but he's a a real person trying to be a real performing member of society but anyway V says to him you have all the facts and names in your head when he asks V you know because he asks V can he prove all, all the truth that he's just spilled, basically. And V says, you have all the facts and names in your head. What you really need is a story. And I feel <laughs> like that connects pretty strongly to what we're seeing with some of these masks and stuff, where especially, like, I think the count is, like, something around, estimated to be around, like, 6,000 6, arrests in China since June. Um, you know, we know that there have been shootings. Certainly there have been not so much in the United States, but in other countries, a lot of intentional killings and uh, just casual killings around people taking action. But while a mask offers kind of little meaningful protection against state violence, um, the mask, right, you need a story. The mask has a lot more story to it that people in other countries and other places or even in the same country can understand you know compared to like say black block tactics right like that covering your face of a black bandana you know coming out as a black mask like there is there's a real usefulness to how this helps build a story i think that's a lot more empathetic and and sympathetic even in very different contexts it was one of the things i wanted to understand was from like my british friends like, how does this Guy Fox mask, like, matter at all in, like, how they conceive of the holiday and, and protest over there? Since this is, like, a British character who, like, nobody in America knew who the fuck Guy Fox was until they read V for Vendetta or then when they saw right. the movie V for Vendetta. Like, it's a very yeah. British thing, right? Um, it's not like King Arthur where we had sort of, like, some associations or whatever. Uh, like, this comic and then the movie is why anyone in America knows who the heck it is. And um, the consensus that I got from British people who are not politically engaged was like, oh, yeah, nobody cares about that movie. That was a long time ago. Yeah, whatever. And then the, 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 what I got from one of my friends um, who's British, who's like a, a union organizer, um, said, uh, this is a quote from him, Graham Coop. I've heard a lot of different takes on the celebration, meaning Guy Fawkes Day, as a whole. And some people point out that the Catholics were being oppressed at the time of the plot and that Fox was fighting back against that, which was true. But also he wanted to restore the divine right of kings and <laughs> monarchy. 
And the, yeah. commemora- and yeah. the commemoration was definitely part of the anti-Catholic history of the UK, but it's also a very good night of fun for families and kids. And I think it's super cool that V for Vendetta appropriated it for the rebellion against authoritarianism. And I feel like in some ways, this symbol is more powerful outside of the UK right now yes. than it is in the UK. Yes. Definitely. Does that sound right, AJ? Yeah. AJ? Uh, 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 there's so many things I want to say uh, in response Do to it. It's because uh, I mean, for one thing, I'm glad you like sort of went back to to the historical guy, Fox, because I, I actually think that that was part of part of um, getting into sort of the more of like an art criticism universe of this text. Like part of what was so clever in sort of picking that up is that it was already this incredibly weird, um, again, not very straightforward symbol. Uh, so yes, on, on it, Guy Fox famously plots this, you know, in the early 17th century, uh, this sort of half-baked uh, attempt to uh, overthrow the government by blowing up parliament uh and it is uh and yes and then then there is a history of this as a sort of uh, a celebration that is uh, is is strongly um tinged with uh, religious bigotry right um as a kind of like anglican superiority and a protestant superiority more broadly speaking uh over a sort of defeated catholic menace right um and then Although these things sort of become looser and weirder. Um, and there's a wonderful uh, phrase, uh, you know, that he's used in a lot of like literary criticism a lot that, of, you know, this phrase, the, the floating signifier, you know, I think it goes back to Claude Levi-Strauss. I think Roland Barthes has a version of it as well. Um, that like things become unmoored uh, from their, um, you know, no pun intended more, uh, like unmoored from their, you know, initial foundations. Um, and then like, a little bit of that story or that worldview um, that, that Ange was mentioning, um, that can become more powerful as the um, images are reproduced or as the thing circulates. And, you know, this is, again, uh, one of my, another, I'll just keep throwing names out there. I really shouldn't. But um, this is like almost very similar to the argument that, um, or part of the argument that Benjamin, uh, Walter Benjamin made in the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction, which is like when you mm-hmm. have the ability to start like reproducing things and re- and appropriating them and changing them and making montages and cha- and like uh, cutting them up and then pasting them into new context, they can take on a whole new life of their own uh, in the hands of the people doing the cutting up, the changing, the rewriting, the redesigning, the redeployment. And I actually think that like, the, uh, the sort of significance of, of E for Vendetta, uh, both through the book and through the film and then through the mask, um, is largely in the ways in which people take this this sort of floating signifier that does have this kind of generically, historically even, anti-authority or anti-authoritarian kind of streak in, in it, and they release it in all these contexts. Like, I don't think every, like... V for like uh, Guy Fox mask wearing person on the streets of, of Chile or of Beirut. Oh, sorry, of uh, I'm actually I've, I've forgotten the, the capital of Chile. It's uh, Santiago, right? Or uh, I, yes, I believe so. Uh, but or, or on Beirut or wherever. Um, uh, I don't think everyone there is like. Uh, not only I do not think they're anarchists, uh, I doubt they are the anarchists of the variety of Alan Moore, but that is not the point. Uh, what is interesting mm-hmm. is the way in which they're able to see a kind of subterranean meeting in that mask or in that um, 
in that text or in, in the film or in the book uh, and bring it forward as part of a recognizable symbology of their, mo- of, of their movement. I actually think this is a really fascinating, I think it's fascinating that this has been taken up so much in places that you might imagine would have a much more agonistic relationship with, for example, both British and American popular culture. Um, so like, I think that that is a, a very interesting resonance um, that people are, uh, uh, are, are are using and finding as uh, to be, um, what's the word, sort of graphically, imagistically powerful. Well, I think that as a, as a symbol that does have its origins in this film and comic book that, you know, drawing back to the late 80s and then the early 2000s, I think that's something that's really nice about yeah. what the mask has come to mean or symbolize Um, whether or not you have that original reference. But just to refer back to that source, like, that I think holds true, whether or not that's your context. Um, You know, I might be quoting this incorrectly, but from what I remember in the film, they say something in the beginning to the effect of, the truth is there's something terribly wrong with this country, isn't there? So, right, so Mm -hmm. that's both an invitation to be part of a conversation as well as sort of like an assertion that maybe there's something that we're on the on par with, or maybe there's something that you haven't stopped to think about. But it, it gives it creates a space to pause. And I mean, in the comic, they said, "What would you do if your own government became so corrupt that ordinary citizens were no longer safe?" And, yeah. and these are things that I think are themes that yes. are still consistent whether or not you've seen the film. Uh, I. Yeah, I just want to say, like, I think it's really important to connect that to um, the way in which, again, this sort of version of dystopia, there really are many different versions of dystopia. And this version, the, the, it asks those questions as opposed to admonishing a certain kind of uh, moral story about, like, don't try to change the world. A lot of dystopian fictions, they really do sort of have that mm-hmm. kind of anti-utopianism as their sort of bread and butter, right? Um, and one of the things that I, you know, it's funny because students often have very vexed relationships with this text and I understand why. And I also have a very vexed relationship with it for many of the reasons that, that Ange noted before. Um, but they all usually uh, sort of pick up on this that, uh, wait a minute, this text is not doing exactly what, I'm trying to think of some of the other things that we like look at or even talk about. Uh, But 1984 is just such the classic. A lot of my students are are reading or watching Handmaid's Tale right now. uh, And and some of, uh, and often the you know, even with the sort of psychosexual dimensions that we haven't even talked about, like in this book, like the relationship between the leader and the computer, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, even sort of putting that to the side to the, uh, for the, to the moment, they, they, uh, students almost across the board pick up that this book is not saying don't do politics. Um, it's asking like, what are you going to do? Or what would you do? Or is there something you would do? Because there is nothing worse than going on like this, which is a really interestingly weird uh, position for a dystopian text to take. Most dystopian texts are like, it can always be worse. And actually like the dream of making things better was the like sin. Here, it's not that at all. Here, it's like the dream of making things better is a gamble that might be worth taking. Well, you know, it's a dystopia because they don't have um, 
dancing in the streets. They don't have Martha and the Vandellas. They don't have American <laughs> black music. And the book is like yeah. super clear about that. And I love that being used as a symbol that way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, let's talk about, let's talk about the computer and the yeah. with the all knowing computer. AJ, talk to me about that. I mean, I don't even know what there is to say about this. Uh, <laughs> I did not, as I said, I did not like reread the book or, or rewatch the movie before this podcast. Unfortunately, it's that time of year uh, in which time is a little bit pressed. Um, uh, I do think it's, well, there's, I have like a very like not fun thing, I guess, to say about it and maybe a more fun thing. So I'll say the not fun thing first, which is like, I do think some of this mm-hmm. is giving into some of the strictures uh, that are, you know, like as much as I like to celebrate certain kinds of mass culture and popular culture, you know, we live in a, you know, a capitalist system and we live in a relatively conservative society, I think, uh, at least here in the United States and, and many other places. Um, and I do think that the completely off the wall sexuality that is in the text with the between um, between the leader uh, and um, and fate the computer just got like ripped out like it just got ripped out basically I assume for some, like, either self censoring purposes or some studio was like fuck you we're not doing that um, I also do think though in the comic and this is the maybe the more interesting one and uh, I'd be curious what other people think about this um, there is a really like, I feel like Moore is drawing upon a sort of longer tradition, both of sort of, you know, everything from the authoritarian personality uh, and some of those other classic sort of mid-century, um, sort of more psychological. I tend to be more of an institutional and a political economy reader of fascism, um, but those more psychological takes of, of, of fascism, uh, particularly mm-hmm. around sort of sexual repression, someone like Marcuse would have written about this from, you know, all those guys. Um, and that, like, uh, the leader in this book, like, really... And it lends itself to, fi- to fictionalization and dramatization, you know? Yeah, and to a certain... And it's also one of the things, like, I often also try to push students on, which has a little... Maybe it's too far from our conversation, but I often am like, what makes this interesting as a comic book? Like, like this is a good comic book, at least in my opinion. Um, and there are things mm-hmm. that comic books can do that I actually think films can't. And one of them is, like, yeah. you can be super hilariously, I think this is part of the same story about the mask as well. You can be hilariously archetypical in a way that if I did it in a movie, it would be stupid um, or it wouldn't like land the same way. And I do think that those elements in the book are really powerful and really interesting. And frankly, like talk about like resonant for the moment. They're pretty resonant for the moment. <laughs> so, like, it's, it's much easier to tell a powerful story where like people's own emotions, psychology, perversions, are part of the drama of why behaviors and political actions play out the yes. way they do than it is to make it just be about systems. Like, you can almost not make it yes. just be about systems and have it work as drama. I mean, I'm, I mean, I, I think of a film, you know, they all, look, everything should have, um, a good storytelling will off, has to have some kind of psychological, um, you know, drama to it. Uh, you know, my, um, but when you're saying you can't make a drama about systems, I was thinking of Brazil. Uh, the Terry Gilliam film. No, you can, film. but that's still a character. But it's still, you, you absolutely can. But you no, can but he's still driven. You know, you don't get out of bed yeah. in the morning. This is a, a old Russian novel uh, by Goncharov Obamov, where literally the character never the character basically exists with no feelings and doesn't get out of bed for like 190 pages. Like, yeah, we, there has to be something that moves. It's interesting that it's basically reduced to a kind of just pat in the film. I don't want to, this is not like too much of a, uh, of an attack on the film, but I do feel like the leader's motivations are just kind of 
pat and they're not 100% clear. Whereas in the, in the book, there really is this kind of like, right, he is a, more of a full person. Like, I don't want to say that in a good way. Like, he's kind of almost like Plato's tyrant. Um, but he, he uh, you can understand his sort of, and it's like a piece, the perfect foil for, of course, V. It's set up very nicely. Moore's good at this, right? He is, he, like, he wants perfect, predictable order at all costs. And um, this is uh, sort of classic sort of dialectic of enlightenment kind of thing. Like, like his own imposition of this on the world does not account for the ways in which his own sexual desires overflow that kind of image of the world. And so he has this intense anthropomorphizing and weirdly almost, uh, it's masochistic, is it not? Relationship with the computer. Yes, definitely. Definitely. Um, but I think it's also like ties in very much to like social media and surveillance at this point, right? Like I don't think that that necessarily was like I I don't you don't like reading this when I read this in the '90s I didn't connect any of it to Facebook, but now I do because they didn't exist. <laughs> um, but uh, but but now I now I do like you know when you see his relationship to looking at the wall and being able to absorb all of the information. And see and spy on everybody. There's so much spying on people, and but like, and not just to get information, but for like psychosexual reasons. You know, it definitely yeah, it titillates him. The it titillates him. It definitely ties into the um, into that the social media like addiction, as it were. And God, he does great things with the colors. Um, you know, I think the 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 light color washes like the comic itself is just so visually stunning yeah and recognizable at all times in the way the movie is um the art version is fine but not awesome um yeah there's this kind of the movie's most powerful visual thing is the mask that david lloyd decided right uh that and the the really beautiful scene so the i think the film is actually I'm, I'm going to like say what you said, but I think a little bit harsher. I think it's pretty sort of generic uh, looking. I think the Wachowskis are fine filmmakers, mm. but it sort of has this sheen of a generic sort of action, you know, blockbuster kind yeah. of movie. Yeah. Um, there is one spectacular sequence. And I think you're right that the most powerful sort of iconographic image and the most powerful images that you can ima- think about from that film are in fact of the David Lloyd version of the mask. Um, that, the, but the other, there is one uh, sequence in the film against not quite the end, but it's pretty close to the end that stands out to me, even in my memory, um, having not rewatched it. But it is that um, domino sequence um, mm, that really, yeah. which I think is also in the book. Now I'm like flipping through again, trying to make sure. I yes, can't there remember. Yes, there is domino. There is, there is, it's not like the same domino thing, but he definitely yeah. fucks around with dominoes. Yes. But the, there is a beautiful, I mean, if we're talking about that, a quote that Ange put on the table earlier about the, like, you have all the facts, but you have to put it into a story. Um, I often think about this as, like, you have all the empirical data, but you don't have the worldview to sort of turn it into, like, an actual politic. Um, and what uh, they really do beautifully do with the language of cinema, the Wachowskis, in the, in the, in the film version, um, is that um, part of 
of, of V's like hope for Evie and part of his hope for in the book for Finch um, is that they will suddenly become aware of the interconnection of a certain set of facts. Um, that these aren't arbitrary. It isn't just, you know, one thing pulling against another, but in fact, this kind of like elaborate system that you can sort of pull on and push on in all these wonderful ways. And I think that the, the sequence of the dominoes falling, uh, you know, in addition to like uh, the, the heavy symbology of fucking dominoes falling, um, actually expresses <laughs> that really beautifully. Beautifully, um, as is the use well, of music, say, by the way. Um, and I and I will say this for the Wachowskis also is in the movie Evie is a character. Yeah, she. Yeah, book, yeah, Evie is not really. She has very little agency, makes very few decisions. Like I still think it was a mistake that the Wachowskis had there be like more of a traditional romance, I guess, between Evie and. Uh, and I know, right? so like, annoying. Bullshit. Uh, Bullshit. Was, I want to hear so more nice. about this. About and you have clearly have things to say though. Okay. Well, I don't want to cut off. I don't want to cut off Alana. <laughs> no, and I have like more more on theme things to say also. But that's just yes. Talk to us about how unnecessary <laughs> the adding the romance was in the movie. <sighs> well, she should have value in that she is alive. That in itself should be enough. But also maybe that she is alive and a human being. Uh, mm-hmm. And she doesn't need to be legitimized through having a romantic relationship for us to be interested in her. No. Fucking right. hate that crap. Especially I, not to a man who abused her. Like, I, Yeah, it's crazy. What, what's it called when like you fall in love with your kidnapper? It's just like, like it's literally Stockholm uh, Syndrome. Stockholm it Syndrome. It makes me upset to see it. And, you know, they, and, and so torn. Because like, I like the character of Evie in the movie much more than in the book. In the book, she's really a cipher. But in the, I mean, mo- she's in the like movie, she's cool. Also. She is, but were you like that when you were 16? I was not like that when I was 16. This is just a 16-year-old girl cipher as done by a man who's not a 16-year-old. Totally. Like, you know totally. what I mean? Totally. She yeah, doesn't she... have any inner life or desires or whatever, you know. And in the movie, she's a she's a pretty cool character. And I like how in the movie the Wachowskis have it be clear that one of the reasons why Evie doesn't act on her political beliefs that she already had is because she's afraid. And, and I'm like, oh, that is such a good audience stand-in. Her parents, yeah, she saw what happened to her parents. Um, she knows what, she has a general sense of what's wrong. She's not like some right-wing person who has to be radicalized from the left. She's somebody who has to get over their fear of taking action. Yeah. But then just to like give her, to make them kiss was just like boo urns. <laughs> Sorry. It's just- and just unnecessary. Unnecessary. Yeah. And also, yeah. I mean, I just feel like that's like part of like... Where you can tell that this was an American-produced film. Yes. I mean, maybe this is like the world over. That's great. I mean, I, I guess my just my just last question would be sort of like you know I I think that there was like a moment where we were seeing the um, the V for Vendetta mask a lot in protests in America, and now we're seeing it like you know all over in Hong Kong and not as much in America. And I just like, do we think like? Do you know is the zeitgeist past? Is there is there is it not any, you know? Do is do do we wait thirty years and it shows up again <laughs> because they've because they've remade it into a, a you know Disney Plus series <laughs> and they for when they own the universe like is, is the moment for this sort of visual like done now in America while it's still very active and potent elsewhere? I guess is sort of a question that I've had and like and. um is especially like sort of in- interesting to me because like when I was beginning to talk about this, all these people were like in the states and in the UK were like, "Oh, it's passe," and I'm like, "Have you watched the international news?" <laughs> you know, um, 
and I, I, I don't know. Like, I, I think it's a, I think it might very well like not be you not be a useful symbol right now in America, um, and it definitely feels like it's still a useful symbol in other places. Um, and I think that there is like so like what is the new V for Vendetta mask in American protest? Like what is, you know, like what is there? What is the new like sort of visual that people can use to? signal that they're united that also has a utility for um actual protest usage that you know is connected to a popular culture story like it did all of these things you know i mean i wish i could just conjure like well here's what we should all do and people yell at me all the time like i'm going to be able to just do that for them and i can take a stab (laughs) but like it's still a sort of which is like you know it's a it's a question about like like how how useful is it now? I mean, Ajay, you're like yeah. teaching this book in your class to people because you think it's it, that the story is useful now. So to yeah, talk, talk to me a bit about. That. I mean, I have like a whole cluster of little things I've just written, uh, thinking about what Andrew was saying and these questions that you're asking now. Um, and you know, I t- it's interesting because I've taught this course several times. I'm not teaching it, you know, right this second. Um, and we also read Octavia Butler, Parables of Sower. We also watch um, Children of Men by Alfonso Curion. Uh, we also watch a very strange anime, uh, Akinohana, Akinohana called, which is basically Flowers mm. of Evil, which is an adaptation of Baudelaire, which is maybe not something you would expect in a class oh, like adapta- this. There is an anime version of... Of Flowers of Evil told as a, a high school drama, of course. Um, <laughs> Good Sorry. God! Your your class sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah. uh, if I, I was if I was not in so much debt, I would say <laughs> sign me up for that one before Brooklyn it fills up. Please are very inexpensive, and there are scholarships. Um, anyway, <laughs> but no, but no, I'm not teaching that class right now. And I do wonder if I would teach V uh, next time around. I still I think I would. Um, the whole question that animated that got you started and that Ange had such good responses to was this like sort of like where's the protest song and I think I, I find this to be like one of the most fascinatingly wrong-headed historical kind of questions like no offense guys who are or girls who are asking that question um, but like you know there there is this w- weird way in which one is like. Yes, one is constantly repurposing the past. Yes, one is constantly sort of trawling and trying to bring forth uh, whatever it is that history has given us. Yes, we actually can't know the future and plunk down a fully drawn, you know, that's the classic, you know, sort of Marxist anti-utopianism, right? Like, is like it has V for Vendetta become passe in, like, Anglophone global North countries. I mean, maybe for the moment, um, but part of what's exciting and interesting, again, about uh, studying and having a critical engagement with popular culture is sort of being able to smell or being able to sense or being able to uh, communicate to others what might have resonance. And so, like, maybe it's moment, you know, it had a big shining moment around Occupy and earlier, and then maybe it's too heavily associated with uh, Anonymous for some folks now. But God knows what what's going to happen down the line. And that's the same story as the story of the mask, right? And the story of Guy Fawkes Day and all that stuff, mm-hmm. right? It had an anti-Catholic meaning. Then it kind of just had like a family fun times meaning. Then all of a sudden it had this kind of like uh, re-emerged anti-authoritarianism that was kind of related to the anti-Catholic thing, but not really. Like it's like a story of emergence and re-emergence and like 
the like there's never gonna be a especially coming out of Hollywood. You were saying Disney Plus is about to own any everything. Like it's not gonna be some message coming out of the culture industry that tells us what to do, but it's rather gonna be what we do with this with our common sort of cultural, you know, universe uh, that we have. Well, thank you guys for joining me. That was like exactly what I wanted to have happen. Um, if anybody has like a last thing you want to say with respect to these particular topics, like that you haven't said, like go for it. Um, yeah, you cannot. You're going to be better gambling at the horse races than you are <laughs> to create concrete estimations around futures or around what will be emergent. I mean, Ajay, you were, you were just saying this a little bit about Occupy. Like, I, I remember when Occupy was going around as an idea in organizing circles, and a lot of people were into it and were excited, and were like, okay, yeah, we're going to think about this, we're going to participate. But a lot of people were, were also, yeah, they were like, that, they were like, yeah, we do occupation all the time. That's never going to take off. I remember the first day it happened, a bunch of the groups I was organizing or participating with at the time were like, I was like, hey, you know, we should go. Our friends are there or whatever. And they were like, no, it's, <laughs> it's going to be gone before we even get there. Right. Traffic's bad. It's going to, and then, you know, Three hours later, I was like, guys, there's a thing that's happening. There's there's over a thousand people. There's possibly thousands of people there. Maybe we should um let's go. That seems like a nice thing to do. And they're like, no way. And then three days later, I was like, guys, it's not going away. Um, (laughs) it's gonna be a little embarrassing for us if we don't jump in there. Come on, let's go. Right. Right. But I mean it speaking to that about emergence being a picture that you get after the fact and it not really being a causation that occurs or is like designed necessarily in a super forward way. Um, something else has come along. Like I haven't seen the new Joker movie, but I'm seeing photos all over the internet of like, yeah, it's circulating like crazy. Yeah. And like, certainly the face makeup of the Joker has been influenced by V for Fendetta. It looks very different than, kind of joker makeup that's been done in other movies yeah i think that yeah i've wondered about i've wondered about like some of the bleed over from the um iconography uh, in like any sort of like white face with features like not white like looks like me but white as in like white as a page um face with like uh features drawn on it and like conflating Joker and like Joker as a, I haven't seen the Joker movie um, as like a political symbol with like V as a political symbol. It's it's complicated. I mean, I, I think that the, the thing that or something at least anyway that that's worth noting or maybe significant something along those lines to this is that we have so much troubling stuff that we are desperately trying to hold in our consciousness. Even if we are just living in our own lives, um, even if we want the world to be different, we don't believe that we ourselves can participate in creating change or if we are fully engaged social different types of activists putting our bodies and lives on the lines, you know, these sorts of things. There's just 
so much that we have to hold in our consciousness to form a reality. And I think that mm-hmm. the thing with the V for Vendetta mask still being around and still getting used is that we need things to help us hold that yeah. in a way that, that isn't completely overwhelming. And as long as there is a social context, there is a relevance for that symbol. And it's it doesn't matter as much how that expression of the symbol changes, such as a kind of shitty printout or like a marker-drawn yeah. version of the mask versus like being able to acquire a mask that gives a bunch of money to, I don't know, Mattel or whoever owns it. But mm-hmm. that it's the social context yeah. that affirms and kind of protects its efficacy. Like the symbol is just a tool and when it's not useful, we'll use a different tool. You know, what I find so fascinating um, about what you were just saying is, right, like, is in fact the way in which these things don't, like, there is no, like, automatic nature or there is no, um, what's the word, um, or a purely organic nature to these things. It is, it is like p- politics is a conscious decision to do things. Uh, doesn't always mean you're following a, a specific map, um, uh, but there is a way in which, uh, again, these like uh, symbols to use the kind of stuff that um, Alana was talking about um, can really take on a different life. Can be plucked. You know, I'll use again this classic language from from Benjamin, blown out of the sort of. Uh, moment in time and made to mean something new. And I actually think that the the Joker stuff is a really good example. I actually also have not seen that movie. Um, I've only read 8,000 reviews of it. Um, and what yeah. I find so funny yeah. about it um, is like, right, some, some reviews are like, this is super reactionary and some movies are like, this is so revolutionary and people are like, this is just kind of Hollywood schlock, right? There's like 18, you know, all these different mm-hmm. people yelling at each other. Uh, and what I find so fascinating is that that conversation uh, amongst the people who theoretically the text should be most legible to, right? Uh, it's a mainstream American Hollywood movie for a mainstream American Hollywood audience, yada, 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 um, is legible in a completely different way on the streets uh, in, uh, particularly I think I've seen those in South America. Um, and that, or in images coming out of, of South America. And I think that is a really interesting form of sort of in, like embodied and practiced criticism and also embodied and, and, and practiced like uh, use of culture as like actual politics and actual politics here not being just a sort of thing that happens uh, with say like institutions and body and, and, and power, but also something that happens with consciousness. And you use the word props. Did you use that word or did I just mm-hmm. like, or tools? Mm-hmm. Like I, I turned that into props. Uh, Cause I think I was thinking about like, um, uh, old Baroque dramas and things like that, right? Where, where you would have like a scepter and a mask and things like that, like little things, a crown, just that, that symbolize certain things. And like how these things can become props um, in stories and in, uh, that are being retold in different geographies at different times, um, ironically for sometimes different worldviews. Uh, and that is very, very, mm-hmm. very powerful. I just loved how you said all of that. Oh, shit. All right. <laughs> Same. <laughs> So let's tell our listeners where they can best find your work thinking and writing online, by which I mean like your Twitter, your website, what have you. Uh, Ajay, uh, where where can folks check out your work? Oh, sure. Um, I mean, 
everyone who is interested in the kinds of things I was just saying uh, should definitely visit thebrooklyninstitute.com, which is uh, the school that I uh, teach at and that I, I run. Um, and we are sort of like grad school for everyone and check it out. And you can find my own personal stuff uh, on my Twitter, I guess, um, at materialist underscore Jew, <laughs> which maybe explains <laughs> some of my last comment. <laughs> Ange, where can we find you on the internet to stalk you more successfully? You may stalk me more successfully by looking for the handle Ange Tran Land, all one word. Um, I don't have a super robust web footprint at this time, but you can see some of my work floating around there and probably pictures of like random things that I've seen on the sidewalk that I'm debating whether or not to take <laughs> home. But... Um, I'm a very chatty person, uh, much more so, I think, probably on social. And, um, yeah, folks are always welcome to uh, hit me up. And sometimes it takes me a long time, but I do generally, you know, tend to uh, eventually reply to direct messages and emails. Well, I, for one, am on Twitter all the damn time, and it's a problem, at Elana <laughs> underscore Brooklyn. That's E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. Of course, this is Graphic Policy Radio. We're on every social media uh, platform and on like every Twitter, every podcast platform. If you like the show, uh, I would love to have some new people re- uh, rate review us on these on the various podcast platforms. It really does matter. And um, I've got upcoming coverage coming up on Watchmen because you demanded it. I, I was not going to necessarily cover the show, and then one of my listeners was like, "I will get you into the HBO thing. Please cover this." And so we will. Um, as well as upcoming interviews with comics writers and artists as per usual. And with that, I remind you to keep it geek.